Well, I'm so excited to be back here, second week in a row in John. Would you turn to John chapter 12? John chapter 12, and this is titled, A Final Invitation, A Final Invitation, and I will be looking at A Final Invitation, I believe, part one, part two, and part three in the next consecutive weeks, but it's going to run from verse 32 down through verse 50. And the reason I called it a final invitation is it is our Lord's final public gospel invitation. You know, a lot of times people tell you about the the last words, and maybe we can do that one week, of famous people. What were their last words in this life? But How much infinitely greater is the last words of our Lord Jesus Christ, at least publicly, to the crowds that are listening. It is his final words. Of course, we'll look to John 13 through 17 on the the upper room discourse. That's in private to his disciples. But here is his last final words, and so I called it a final invitation. Mark Dever recalls reading a book many years ago by C.S. Lovett. And the name of the book was called Soul Winning Made Easy, in which he lays out what Lovett called his soul winning plan. And here's what he said. He said, did Lovett, the trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. He said, there is no middle ground as he moves with deafness right up to the final point of salvation. It is his conversation control that makes it possible. He knows exactly what he is going to say each step of the way and can even anticipate his prospects' responses. He is able to keep the conversation focused on the main issue and prevent unrelated material being introduced. He said controlled conversation technique is a real breakthrough in soul winning. So in other words, you can manipulate it or him or her whom you're giving the gospel to. Lovett goes on to say this, quote, get your prospect alone. Then, lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder with a semi-commanding tone of voice and say to him, bow your head with me. Do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. And out of the corner of your eye, you will see him hesitate at first. And as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation and you will know when his heart yields. And then he said, bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. Wow. Terrific psychological pressure. I mean, is that what we've been reduced to in our evangelism efforts? Terrific psychological pressure. In fact, how many churches today are full of people who have been psychologically pressured but never truly converted? I would think many. Let me ask you a question, Grace Church of the Valley. Would you say that Jesus was a successful evangelist? What would you say to that? I mean, you'd think if there ever was a great evangelist, he was the greatest. But was he a successful evangelist? I mean, what's interesting today is that many people have reduced the gospel to facts stated in the fewest possible words. Have you ever noticed that? These are just a sampling, and I could have done more. Six steps to peace with God. Five things 
God wants you to know, okay? Four spiritual, what? Laws. Three truths you can't live without. Two issues you must settle. And then, of course, the most, the one that reduced it down is this, is one way to heaven. Listen, just would you consider the response to the Lord's ministry of preaching? He came in John 1, 1, and he came into his own, and his own people did not, what? Receive him. They didn't receive him. In fact, to Nicodemus, Jesus said in John 3.11, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, you do not receive our testimony. Later in John 3.32, it says he bears witness. I think John the Baptist saying of Jesus Yet no one receives his testimony. In John 5.40, Jesus said to the crowd, You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Has that ever staggered you? Have you ever been sharing the gospel? Sharing the glories of the good news? And people just refuse to come to me in Jesus' day that you may have life, and so it is today. In John 5, 43, he said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. It told us in John 7, 5, that even his brothers were not believing in him. That's shocking by itself. To grow up with a brother that never sinned. Until after the resurrection, they came to Christ. But at least early in the gospel, in 7.5, they were not believing in him. Jesus said in 8.45, he said, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. What's your view of evangelism? What's your view of the invitation? Jesus was the great inviter to his gospel do you remember when he said in another gospel in Matthew 23, 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were unwilling. Let me ask you, Grace Church, how come so many reject the gospel. We were at the elders meeting on uh, Tuesday night, so thankful for our men who faithfully serve, and we we're just recapping some of our missions work. The Zellers are coming to town, and Lucho hasn't seen somebody come to Christ in two years in Italy. Two years. A religious place, but the field is hard. The way is narrow. Would you pray for Lucho? And maybe just, by the way, I want you to all show up next Sunday at 9 a.m. for coffee, donuts, but that's the small thing. You come here from Eric Zeller, who ministers in the Middle East. We need to be praying for these people. And so as we walk through that, I, I bring you back down to John chapter 12, his final public invitation. It is his last public words. He is ours, maybe before the crucifixion. I think I've told you this is Passion Week in John 12. And there's some question as to what day it is, but I think it's Wednesday. It's either Tuesday or Wednesday, and I I think as best as we can see, it's Wednesday. And what I want to do, at least this morning, is look at his final invitation along three lines of thought, okay? His final invitation along three lines of thought. And I would have to tell you that uh, it just always stuns me week after week to be in the Word of God with you. 
Like, you know, it's not like I go to seminary and uh, they teach you everything you know in the Bible. It's not like I went and got my doctorate so I could know everything in the Bible. No, the, the purpose of our pastoral training here and every pastoral training is to teach men how to get the answers. That's why you go to seminary. You don't gain the, you, you're going to gain knowledge, but you go to get the answers to the scripture. And I must say that I just was stunned this week. So here's his final invitation, at least this morning, along three lines of thought, okay? Let's first give this statement that his gospel invitation goes to all without distinction. His gospel invitation goes to all without distinction. And this is our Lord's gospel. Look and pick up the text at verse 32. Jesus said there, and I... When I am lifted up from the earth, shall draw all people to myself. Now, this gospel invitation, it goes out to all without distinction. You're aware that in the beginning of the gospels that he came only to the lost sheep of the house of what? Israel. But as the gospel moves forward, as he finds himself in the Passion Week, remember the question, the statement, look back in 1220. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's Gentiles. So these came to Philip in 1221, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew, Philip went and told Jesus and then it says, and Jesus answered them in 1223, significant statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's kind of somewhat abrupt. They come and tell him what the Greeks' question was. One disciple goes to another who goes to another who come together to Jesus. He hears the question, we want to see Jesus. And he recognized for the first time there that the hour has come. Every other time, the hour was future. But in that statement of the Greeks, his hour had come. Now you'll glance down again at 32 when he says, I'll draw all people to myself. Of course, what does the all mean? And it doesn't mean that all are saved. It doesn't mean that. But in the context, it just means all people without distinction. All people, Jew and Gentile alike. All people without distinction. In other words, the Savior didn't just come for the nation of Israel. And though we noted that it means all without distinction, it certainly does not mean it's all without exception. In other words, the cross isn't going to draw all people to a saving relationship. It draws all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile alike, man and woman, bond and free. But it doesn't draw all people without exception because verse 31 of this uh, same chapter speaks of the judgment of the world. Obviously, he'll draw all people. He's not espousing universalism. But what's interesting is you keep seeing this invitation go to all without extinction, extinction or distinction. Look at verse 25. He makes these statements, whoever loves his life loses it. And then here it is, open again, open invitation. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever, any of you gathered even here this morning, whoever. In fact, look down at 1226. Do you remember he opened it up there? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, if anyone down at the end of 26 serves me, the Father will honor him. In other words, all may approach him freely without distinction. Enough said, beloved, that salvation is not granted upon bloodlines or race. Do you remember if you low back in your Bible, look back at John chapter 3 for a moment. In John chapter 3, in that great statement of the gospel. Remember, he's talking there about Moses, and I'm in 314. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then this in 315, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
In other words, this gospel invitation goes to all without distinction. Look at 3.16, you know well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but whoever, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In fact, remember when John the Baptist laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember what he said, that he takes away the sin of the what? The world, not the sin of the nation, but behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, I want you to understand in this final invitation, there is a gospel call that goes out to all without distinction. Do you remember back in John chapter 4 when the woman of the well said that he is the Savior of the world. In fact, look over at John chapter 6 just for a moment. In John chapter 6, it goes to all, and you can see that in 640, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. There is this constant invitation that goes on to all, goes out to all. In fact, continue to look over at John 6, back up in 637. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, certainly his sovereignty. And then it says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the teaching of John's gospel. This is the teaching of the Bible. This is why racism would have no part of this church, no part of the gospel. God is no respecter of persons. His gospel goes all to all freely. In fact, it says in John 1.12, to all who did receive them, him, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who receive him. In fact, in John 5, 24, whoever believes him who sent me, Jesus said, has eternal life. He said in John eleven twenty five, 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I mean, this is just the gospel. This is the gospel that you should go out and proclaim. This is the gospel that you need to, I need to open your mouth and proclaim. This gospel, this invitation goes to all without distinction. It comes to people in the Central Valley. It goes to the people in the Middle East in Dubai. It goes to the, the village there in Uganda. But it goes to all without distinction. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 10, 13, 10, 12, and 13. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. And then for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this gospel, His gospel, goes to all without distinction. But there's a second line of thought. His gospel, secondly, is not embraced by all. His gospel is not embraced by all. Look at the text in verse 34, John 12, 34. Though it goes out, it's not embraced by all in any measure. You can see it in 34. So the crowd answered him. He said right prior to that, I, I, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. And verse 34, so the crowd answered him. And they said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So his gospel is not embraced by all. Now you could either read this sincerely or you can read it sarcastically. I mean, you... If you just read it, you might just think that they're asking a question, but I don't, I don't think so. I think if you can read it, and I'll share why in a little bit, with this tone, how can you say? I mean, how, in other words, they're jabbing at him. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die on a cross. How can you say the Son of Man be lifted up? And then that last question in 34, who is this Son of Man? I read it sarcastically. Who do you think you are? Now, you remember in the Jewish historical setting, they thought that the Messiah would deliver Israel, not die. 
Their hope was that the Messiah would deliver them from Roman impression. They didn't want a, a, a Messiah that would die. In fact, look at the scripture again in 1234. They said, we have heard from the law that it says there the Christ remains forever. In other words, they thought, doesn't he remain forever as a king? And I would say to you, certainly there's much truth that does state that. In fact, in Psalm 89, in verse 35, there the psalmist said, I will not lie to David, his offspring, speaking of the Davidic line, shall endure forever. So how do you say, Jesus, you're going to be lifted up? Maybe they were thinking of Psalm 89 possibly summoned the crowd here, and remember this is a large crowd, we're thinking of Isaiah 9-7, when it talked about of the increase of his government and the peace, it says there, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We're talking about a throne in their mind. We're talking about justice. We're talking about him ruling and reigning. Maybe they were thinking Isaiah 9-7. Possibly they were thinking 2 Samuel 7-13, where it says in 2 Samuel 7-13 that he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So they just couldn't compute with the Son of Man being lifted up. Maybe they even went back to Daniel in 7.13 where it said one like a son of man came to the ancient of days and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And maybe they're sitting there listening to his words about his hour has come to be glorified and I am going to be lifted up and now they hear that he's going to die. And so I think mockingly they say, who is this son of man? Now, beloved, we know the greater account, do we not? That one day he will reign, one day he will rule but he has reserved that for his second coming. In his first coming, he came to die in your place for your sins. So Grace Church of the Valley, though the gospel goes to all without distinction, it is certainly not embraced by all. And so they finished 34 with a question, who is the Son of Man? Now I want you to note that he doesn't answer their question. Directly, look at verse 35. So Jesus said to them, it's like he just blows right past them. He said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And so I bring you to the third line of thought here, is that his gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, commands you to believe. It commands you to believe. In other words, he says the light is among you just for a little while longer. In other words, he's telling them, I'm soon going to be gone. They don't know it, but he knows it. He's just maybe days, if not hours away from his crucifixion. So he says the light is among you just for a little while longer. You remember this light theme is all over the Gospel of John. Jesus declared in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever, he said, follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of the life. So we clearly know that he is the light of the world. He said in John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. In fact, that theme, look back in John chapter 1 just for a second. Look back, turn in your Bible to John chapter 1. Let me just show you, remember this, we touched on it, and I'm just highlighting the fact that he's just going to be here a little longer. But this is John 
It says there, look, just from four to nine, six different times. In him was life, one four. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Apostle, talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, through his testimony. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens everyone, it says, was coming into the world. In other words, he is the light of the world. You say, what's he talking about? Well, it's a spiritual light, is it not? You know, they used to say that in World War II, during the blackouts in London, on a clear night, that a lighted match could be seen for 20 miles from the air. Imagine that. Well, our Lord is that bright, shining light in the darkness of the darkest night of the darkest world. You say, well, Scott, what, what does it mean here that the light is among you a little longer? Well, you can go back and listen online to John chapter 1. You can listen to John chapter 8. But let me just say that light itself in the Scripture is God's life manifested, if you will, in Christ. In the Old Testament, it says that God is light. So in the New Testament, when you come to this statement, Jesus saying that I am the light of the world, the life of God is in his only begotten son. In fact, Paul said the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4.4 is the image of God. So light is just the very reflection of God. But if I just put it succinctly in two categories for you, what does it mean that he's the light of the world? Light, number one, is intellectual. And what I mean by that is light refers to truth in Scripture. For Jesus to say he's the light of the world is to say that he's the light of the truth. Do you remember even back in the Psalms, it said that the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So when you think about this spiritual light, it is referring, number one, to truth itself. In a dark world, in a world stained by sin, in a world of great difficulty with the people that you interact with, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the truth of God. And usually, in comparison to the fact that he's truth, okay, Darkness, on the other hand, is falsehood. That's just succinctly stated in Scripture all over the place. So when he says he's the light, he's truth, but it just means this. Everything else in the globe is falsehood outside of the light of Jesus Christ. I don't want to make too much of a deal about this, but just right there in John chapter 12, five times Jesus refers to the light. Four times he doesn't say that I am a light in the original Greek. He says four times I am am the light. And the only time that he doesn't use that is when he speaks of you who have trusted in him and he calls us sons of light. But that's derivative from the life of Christ that's in us. But he is the light. So intellectually, it refers to truth. Darkness is falsehood. And listen, I just want to say to you, if you think our community doesn't need that, you're wrong. You just start talking to the people who live amongst here. They need the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's an intellectual insight to spiritual truth. But secondly, when it says he's the light, it's morally referring to holiness. Okay? Morally, it's referring to holiness. That when you walk towards the light... You're walking towards the life of Christ. You're walking towards holiness. And conversely, the darkness is always sin. Okay? That's something of what Jesus means here. Now look back in John chapter 12. Look at that text there again. When he says this, he said in verse 35, the light is among you a little while longer. In other words, I'm just going to be with you a little bit more. He said it in John 7, I'm going to be with you just a little while longer. 
He goes, I'm going away and you will seek me, but you will die in your sins, he said in 831. He said it also in John 13. But you know, at this point, they always didn't understand what he meant when he said, I'm going away. Look, look at John 16 just for a moment. In John 16, 16, and this is not even the crowds. I'm directing you in his upper room discourse to his disciples in 16, 16. He's, they said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me again. You will see me. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death. It's easy for us to read that. It, they didn't understand that. When he sees them again, he's talking about his resurrection. So some of his disciples, verse 17, said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me in a little while? He says, and you will, you will see me and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. In other words, I think we as his readers understand post-resurrection, post-time. We understand, but they didn't understand what he was saying. Now listen, track with me here. This is what stuns me. He is going away. We know from parts of John that obviously God is sovereign in salvation. He's going to draw people to himself. But what he does here in this final gospel invitation is he issues two challenges. Would you look at him in verse 36? He says, actually, go back to 35. He says in the middle of 35, he says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtakes you. In other words, walk while you have the light lest you become engulfed by the darkness. Now, obviously, our Lord is speaking directly to his disciples. But, beloved, this is the word of God. I believe here he's saying it to you as well. In other words, while you have the light, while you're exposed to the light, while you're exposed to truth, while you're exposed to holiness, he says in his first challenge there to walk in the light. Now what's interesting to me both in the first challenge which is to walk and in the second challenge to believe is this. Those are both present, active, imperative verbs. So what does that mean, pastor? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ is issuing you a challenge this morning in his gospel. He's saying that while you have this light, even in this day and certainly in that day, you need to ever be walking by way of practice towards the truth. In other words, I think it's a great warning, but I also think it's measured by grace. You need to keep on walking to the light before the darkness engulfs you, is the thought. In other words, walking towards the light involves following him continuously, okay? He's not talking about praying a prayer, walking an aisle, and then never setting foot inside a church again, or with the people of God. He's giving a command to the people and he's giving a command to us that I want you to walk with me. I want you to follow me continuously. It means, beloved, walking in his steps. It means doing what he does. It means thinking like he thinks. It means acting as he acts. To do that is to walk in the light for he is the light. In other words, in his gospel invitation, he's issuing you a command even this morning. And by the way, I don't take it lightly. I don't think all of you are doing that. And I'm issuing you a warning as loving as I can. That your life needs to be consistent with the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's issuing you a command to walk continuously. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean? Well, let me show you just, just a few verses. Would you look in Ephesians just for a second? Let me, let me, and I'm trying to illustrate here, what does that mean to walk? Well, it just means to abide in him. 
It means to obey him. It means to follow him. But it means something like this in Ephesians chapter 4, 1, when he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, I plead with you, to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says, I'm going to exhort you here in John 12. Paul says, I'm going to exhort you to walk in a manner worthy. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, to walk worthy is that picture of a scale of balance. And the, the idea that if you're, if you're going to put something and you want it to balance, you need to have balance on those scales. And what the apostle is saying is, I want your life to be consistent with the calling of him calling you out before the foundation of the world. In other words, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, you're to let your life be consistent with the truth you know. I am dumbfounded how many people have been raised around truth in this valley and do not walk in obedience to it. Frightening. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. Frightening to be around it your whole life and somehow your life is completely inconsistent with the life of Christ. But listen, I think Christ is being gracious to you. I think he's just saying, no, I'm commanding you, Jesus says, to walk in the light. Look over at Ephesians chapter 5 and 1-2. He says, therefore, this is a little bit of it, in 5-1, be imitators of God, beloved children. That's what it means to walk in the light. Certainly not talking about sinless perfection, but he is talking about the direction of my life and your life. Be imitators of God. And then watch this in 5.2. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we're to be an imitator of God and we're to walk in love. In other words, our life ever needs to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn the page, look over in the book of Colossians. It's all over the Bible. In Colossians 1.10, there he's telling us how to be thankful and be in prayer. And he exhorts us in 1.10, so to, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? The next phrase, fully pleasing to him. What does that mean? Bearing fruit in every good work. Is that your life? Are you looking more like the Lord Jesus Christ every day? So listen, our Lord in this gospel invitation gives somebody a command, us a command, to walk in the light. Look over, go right again to 1 Thessalonians. Let me show you there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you'll see the truth come out again there in 2.12 where he says... As we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk. In other words, in a manner worthy of God. In other words, your life needs to be consistent with God. Say, so, well, how do I know that? Well, it's real simple. Just go ask someone. You talk like Christ, you act like Christ, you live like Christ. Is that the passion of your heart? Or do you claim one thing and live another? And I just think Jesus is commanding this crowd. It goes to all without right, distinction. It's not embraced by all. And I thought he would have closed the book right away, but he doesn't. He gives a final invitation. And it's so gracious. In fact, one more. Would you look over at the book of Romans chapter 13? I'm trying to illustrate what it means to walk in the light in Romans 13, Romans 13, an amazing statement there. He said in that language, in that metaphoric language, the night, 1312 of Romans, the night is gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And watch this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision 
There's a lot of people making excuse for sin. And I just want you to make no provision. So he says to walk in the light. Would you go back to John just for a second here? In John chapter 12, you'll notice that he says, and here's the way in which the world lives, and it might be some of you, but he says there, he says, walk in the light, 35, while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. In other words, you've got to be able to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem here, isn't there? You say, what's the problem, Scott? Well, John 3, light has come into the world and people love the what? Darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. He doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But here's the hope of the gospel. Look down in chapter 12 in verse 46. Jesus says there, here's the hope. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In fact, that leads to the second challenge. The first challenge was walk in the light. Here's the second challenge. Look at 1236. He says there, while you have the light, he said, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So the first challenge was to walk in the light. The second challenge is to believe in the light. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to believe me. I want you to believe my person. I want you to believe my words. I want you to believe my life. I am the light of the world, and here we're exhorted to believe in the light, and only in the sovereignty of God, it is a present active imperative. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean to you? Well, there's none of you this morning who can ever say, listen, God just hasn't elected me. God just hasn't saved me. See, pastor, you don't understand my sin. You don't understand the physical condition that I'm in that leads me to sin. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to command you to walk in the truth. He's going to command you to believe in the truth. And as he commands you to believe and put your, all your hope and confidence in him, he says, then you will become a son of light. It's only those who are walking and believing by way of direction that are the sons of light. And so you have to walk towards the truth. You say, what does it mean to believe in him? It means to surrender to him. It means to believe on him. And so I ask you this morning by, by a gracious invitation, are you in the darkness this morning? If you are, trust him before the darkness engulfs you. Don't put him off. I don't know why I have such a sense of urgency today with you. And I love you. But if you're, I know you're here. But if your life is inconsistent with the pattern of Christ, then you need to put on the armor of life, cast off darkness. Don't put them off today. Today is the day of salvation. Have you ever felt the need to tell somebody, whether by conversation, by email, when they just one more time say they're not ready? I just have one more thing to do. I have to go bury my family. I just bought a piece of property. I just have this. And I, there's a sense of urgency with Christ when he says, while you have the light, you need to walk in the light. In other words, some of you young people won't hear my voice. You know, if, if the statistics are true, and I don't think they're true here, you know, there's lots of people in church till they're 18 until they get off to the sorority and the fraternity to never come back again. I mean, this is a, a reality here. Today's the date, but tragically, would you look what happened in the text? It's amazing. Do you see it there in verse 36b where he says, walk while you have the light, believe in the light, and then it, it creates a paragraph in most Bibles. When Jesus had said these things, do you see what it said? He departed and hid himself from them. I mean, I'm kind of a little surprised that he would not say something else. I think what he's saying is, I've already told you everything that I can tell you. And after he told him the full gospel, and after he's given him all of his miracles for three years, and after he's told him about his person, 
It amazingly says right there in 1236b, he departed and hid himself. Now, he's done that before. He's departed and hid because his time and his hour had not come. But I'm just telling you, at this passage, he departs and hides. He makes a final statement at the end of 12, but he never comes back publicly again. In other words, I just think there's a sense of, of finality to it. Now you say, well, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly they beheld him. Certainly they believed on him. Certainly they saw the miracles. Certainly they saw what he did. Certainly there's still conversation from the previous chapter on the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. But if you will, cast your eyes down on 37. Amazing. Though he had done so many signs before them. I mean, this is just hard for me to say. They still did not, what? Believe them. Frightening. So I asked you at the beginning, was Jesus a good evangelist? Facetiously a little bit to you. But after all he said to them, verse 37, they still did not believe. And what strikes me there is the tense of that language they still did not believe. It's what we call, um, like you don't, you don't, you can read it and you get it, but I'm just telling you it's an imperfect tense. And what that means is this. It just reveals the progressive nature of unbelief. Three years with the master, and at least in this text, they are progressively still holding on to their unbelief. Look at the statement again in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs. In other words, beloved, there is a massive evidence presented to the Sanhedrin all over this gospel and to the crowds, the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Court of Israel. They, and you know what's interesting? And you just go back and read. They never attempted to disprove what he did. Ever notice that? I don't see any kind of apologetic argument that he didn't do it. Oh, they lied about his resurrection. They called the man born and blind, but did you know they never disproved? How could you disprove it? The dude was blind and now he sees. Pretty fair, right? The guy had a withered hand and now his hand is whole. The girl's daughter was dead, but now she, you, you, how, how do you disprove him? So listen, he healed the sick. He exercised demons. He controlled the winds. He rebuked the sea. He walked on the water. He raised the dead. And nobody ever denied it. Then you've got even the miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And it couldn't result in belief in him. Amazing. You say, well, Scott, what am I left with at this point? Well... There's three types of people here this morning. Just three. And you tell me where you are. And this is a means of grace to you, okay? You're either a believer and you know Christ and you're a son of light because you walk in the light and believe the light. And there's a promise held out to you you're a son of light, as I just said. Listen, if the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord, he's your king, he's your everything, and you've come to him and you say, Scott, I'm not perfect, I'm not what I should be, but the trajectory and the direction of my life is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, then praise God. But secondly, there's unbelievers here. Okay, an unbeliever, if that's you, I'm so glad you've come. I'm always going to tell you what the Bible says. I, if you're an unbeliever here, I would just say, oh, listen, would you not come to the light even this morning? Would you not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even this morning? The world out in which we live is full of darkness and it's getting darker all the time and the only hope for the soul and for eternal life is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You've got to come to him. You've got to put your hope in him. You've got to believe on who he is. You need to turn away from the darkness. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from that relationship and God Almighty will wondrously save you. So there's believers here, your son of light. There's an unbeliever. I give you a gracious invitation because I think Jesus is. I think Jesus is giving an invitation. In fact, I have no idea of why I'm even saying this, but I believe there's people in here who need to hear this with all my heart. He's graciously appealing to you. He's saying there's a time coming where the darkness is going to engulf you. And he's actually saying while you're in the hearing of the word, submit your life to the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, you said there's three types of people. Yes, believers, unbelievers, and thirdly, some of you are make-believers, which is frightening. Judas was a make-believer, wasn't he? Can you imagine being around the person of Christ? Three years, 352 days, or at least most of those were with him at last year and a half. And then him betraying the Son of Man. He was around the truth. He was in the presence of God himself. He was in the presence of every miracle but he was deceptive. And you might know that I'm talking to you right now, okay? And, and you say, well, Scott, what would I say to you? I would say, come to the light. I would say, believe on the light. I would say, turn away from your sin. Turn away, if that's the case, if you're living a duplicitous life. Come even this morning. I think Jesus is so kind, don't you? Like, I'm not like trying to fire up on preach on this. I'm just saying he's appealing to you. If you are a make-believer, you say, well, Scott, what do you mean a make-believer? You're one thing here, and Monday through Saturday, you're living in a complete opposite direction. And, and if you have a duplicitous life, a double life, then I just want you to know that Jesus is saying, come unto me, even this morning. May, come to the light. Believe on me. But recognize this, to not turn away from darkness is to put you in danger, and I want to make sure that you come to him. So here's the question. Was he a successful evangelist? Well, at least here, it says that many persisted in unbelief. Now, here's the next question. Does that mean that God's plan has failed? Does, does that believe no one is going to get saved? Does that mean that no one is actually believing? And my answer would be, oh no. Just read down in John chapter 12 and you need to come back in two weeks, okay? Obviously next week Eric Zeller will be here and then I'll be back in John. You come back and I'll show you that it doesn't mean that our Lord's plan has failed.